This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. I'm Amy Mollett. This month we'll be focusing on some of the big issues in economics and finance, exploring questions like what can the opera teach us about economic decision making and could loan sharks be coming to a football club near you? The Prisoner's Dilemma game suggests that actually if you act in your own self-interest you do each other down and you'd be better off acting collaboratively, not individually, selfishly. So it's created this dissonance inside economics, which over time has gradually meant that economics has developed a much stronger set of of investigations. That's LSE's Professor of History and Philosophy of Economics, Mary Morgan, talking about her book, The World in the Model, How Economists Work and Think. Also on this podcast, researcher and writer Carl Packman tells us more about his book, Loan Sharks, The Rise and Rise of Payday Lending. And Professor John Van Rienen, Director of LSE's Centre for Economic Performance, will feature in our Academic Inspiration segment, speaking about the books and comic books that inspired him into economics. All that and more coming up. You're listening to the LSE Review of Books podcast. Publishing twice-daily reviews of the latest social science titles, the LSE Review of Books covers all aspects of politics, sociology, economics and more. You can visit us at lsereviewofbooks.com. Later in the podcast, we'll explore the unregulated world of payday lending. But first, Cheryl Bremley speaks to Mary Morgan about economic models and how economists use them to think about the world, starting with a little tale from the opera. In the final act of Puccini's opera Tosca, the eponymous heroine and a crooked police chief named Scarpia are faced with a decision. Tosca is in love with the painter Cavaradossi, but Cavaradossi has fallen into the clutches of the jealous Scarpia on charges for which he is later sentenced to death. Scarpia has obvious motives. He wants Cavaradossi out of the picture so he can win the affection of Tosca. So Scarpia cuts her a deal. Scarpia will ensure the executioner's guns are filled with blanks in exchange for Tosca's sexual favors. Tosca first consents, but as if she had fingers crossed behind her back, she doesn't follow through. Tosca stabs Scarpia to death, but only after she sees him sign off the mock execution. She runs to tell Cavaradossi the good news. He need only to feign death in front of the executioners until they are satisfied he is dead, and then they walk away. Presumably to live happily ever after. But when the bullets go off... Cavaradossi is struck dead. Scarpia, too, has betrayed the deal. At the opera's end, Scarpia is dead. Cavardossi is dead, and... Tosca jumps off the castle roof to meet her own death. Just in case you're left wondering what this has to do with economics... Let's go back to that all-important deal between Scarpia and Tosca. 
This is a strategic situation where both can make the choice to go along with their deal and both renege on the deal and end up with a bad outcome. That's Mary Morgan, Professor of History and Philosophy of Economics at the LSE. In her latest book, The World in the Model, How Economists Work and Think, she traces the change in economics from Adam Smith's free hand to its present-day form as a mathematical model-based discipline. She does so through a series of case studies, giving a guided tour through the discipline's most well-known and historically significant models. And that brings us back to our opera characters. Tosca and Scarpia have found themselves in a famous economic conundrum, The Prisoner's Dilemma. The Prisoner's Dilemma is a game in which uh, there's two prisoners and they're both taken in by the local sheriff and if they can agree to trust each other and not confess, they will both get off rather lightly because the sheriff doesn't have a whole lot of evidence against them. On the other hand, the sheriff also offers each of them a deal that if they confess and shop the other prisoner, they will get off scot-free and the other one will really have the book thrown at them. So the most rational decision for each prisoner is to betray his or her partner in crime. But this mutual betrayal backfires because it provides the sheriff with enough evidence to keep them both in prison. And the same strategic setup applies for Tosca and Scarpia. Joel Sass, editor of our sister blog, LSE Politics and Policy, explains. From Tosca's perspective, no matter what Scarpia does, whether he actually saves the boyfriend or lies about doing so, she would prefer to kill him rather than go along with his sexual blackmail. On the other hand, Scarpia, who lusts after Tosca, would prefer to actually get rid of her boyfriend rather than save him, regardless of whether he gets sex or not. So the incentives of both characters are to deceive the other. As a result, they both end up in the worst of all four possible outcomes. Were they actually able to come into their bargain, they obviously both would be better off because they would be alive. As alluded to earlier, the prisoner's dilemma is arguably the most important game theory model. Game theory itself developed as a field during World War II as a means to think of strategic action and was played by young scientists at places like the Rand Corporation in Princeton. Game theory operates a clear diversion from Adam Smith's invisible hand. The invisible hand suggests that if every person acts in their own self-interest, they will act for the good of all. Well, that's sort of might be the first law of economics, but the prisoner's dilemma game suggests that actually if you act in your own self-interest, you do each other down, and you'd be better off acting collaboratively, not individually, selfishly. So it's created this dissonance inside economics, which over time has gradually meant that economics has developed a much stronger set of, of investigations. When Mary Morgan began working on economic models over 17 years ago, she asked economists how they thought these mathematical diagrams and sets of equations related to the world. She received these rather curious, if not contradictory, answers. And there was two kinds of responses which I can kind of caricature by saying, well, um, on the one hand, they're not supposed to really be about the world, and the other set of answers were really things saying, well, they get to the heart of the matter. These responses also left a philosophical gap. How exactly do these models teach people about the world? Mary contends that they are really experimental objects. They're objects that economists build and create. It's an imaginative cognitive leap to create those models, but once they've got them, 
what economists do with them when they work with them is to explore the possible range of implications they have for the kinds of objects they think they represent in the world. It needs to be said that Mary isn't talking about all forms of economic models. I'm not dealing here with the big chunk of applied economics which uses econometric models, which are statistical models with data. So we're talking about the mathematical models, which are theorizing kind of tools. In her book, she references staple models in economics, like the Newland-Phillips machine and the various models built around Keynes' general theory. Mary notes that economists create these imagined worlds. They cognitively develop them and play around with them on the page. And then at some point, these worlds jump off the page, and economists begin to see these models in real-world situations. So for the prisoner's dilemma... The prisoner's dilemma isn't just a little scientific object to think about, but it becomes things which we find happening in the world. So problems like pollution and uh, individual benefits to the polluter from pollution, but the disadvantages to society. So events in, in the world which can be thought of and understood as prisoner's dilemma kinds of models are seen to be prisoner's dilemmas in the world rather than a model on the page in the, in the economist's uh, study. We can understand this phenomenon by looking at a model which has influenced design for cities around the world. The London Underground Map. Designed by Harry Beck in 1933, the map drew upon Beck's work as an electrical droughtsman. Instead of developing an exact representation of the curvy arteries of a sprawling metropolis, he modeled it around a circuit diagram. Had Beck represented the London tube lines as they actually were, passengers would be left to decipher the map equivalent of a spaghetti bowl. Far from being the clean grid system found in other world cities, London's underground lines serve as a sprawling and confusing metropolis. Simplification was, and still is necessary. People's picture of London is the tube map. The people's geographical sense, spatial sense of London is the tube map. So it's a process of gaining a cognition of London through a representation of it so that you see London above ground in terms of the London below ground. And likewise, the way economists see the world and the real-life transactions within it is informed by the models of their creation not the other way around. Some may find this problematic, because these models aren't reflections of the world we live in, but are nonetheless used as explanatory devices. Mary recognizes this caveat, but claims that, like maps, economic models are not meant to be true representations of situations that we find ourselves in, but rather they are utilitarian objects. If we had a map that was entirely descriptive of everything in the world, we would have a map that's as large as the world. We can't make representations that are usable if they represent everything exactly accurately. There are descriptions which are just, just as impossible. So we need to create representations of the world which allow us to, to, to work in the world and to do things in the world, which is why the tube map works. In more recent years, models have been applied more vigorously to real-life situations. Mary calls this the Freakonomics phenomenon, named after Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner's famous book and New York Times columns, which has inspired a host of emulators. They are taking economic models, which are these rather specified bits of knowledge, and they are making the translation from those worlds in the model to things in the world. 
So there's a set of gatekeepers developing, some of them who are economists and some of them are journalists, who are translating these little models back into the things that you and I find in the world. Should you both pay if you go on a date? Why do drug dealers live with their mothers? These kind of questions, which may not be everyday questions, some of them, but they are sort of really specified questions. And what these uh, gatekeepers are doing are translating this mathematical sets of worlds in the model into an everyday account of why you might behave like this. And so the economist as columnist has taken this now mathematical model-based discipline back to what Mary calls the verbal science that economics was around the time of Adam Smith. They're translating the mathematics into an everyday language again. So economics has sort of come from Adam Smith's little stories about how what it means to be human is that you're not like dogs, you don't fight over bones, you exchange, you have a propensity to trap barter and exchange. And taking that kind of way of explaining economics back into the public domain in a way. With this said, the discipline is still a very different science to what it was in the 18th century, and the use of models has facilitated this great shift. Yet Mary recognizes in her book that modeling has not necessarily made it easier to find truths about the economy, but rather, as she puts it, models are a practical form of reasoning for economists, a method of exploration, of inquiry, into both her ideas and their worlds. As Harry Beck ignored creating a true representation of the tube map, so have economists with the world itself. These don't describe accurately the world we live in, neither does the tube map, but it's an incredibly usable tool to help us think with, and that's really what economists use their models for, to help think with them. That was LSE Professor Mary Morgan talking about her new book, The World in the Model, How Economists Work and Think, out now in hardback from Oxford University Press. Now, we jump out of the mind of economists and into the lucrative world of high street lending. The term payday loan recently became one of 1,200 new words to enter the Oxford English Dictionary. The OED suggests the term and practice is chiefly American, but more recently, payday lending has found overwhelming success this side of the pond. Critics, including writer and researcher Carl Pakman, contend that the unethical interest rates of payday lenders purposefully lead consumers into spiralling cycles of debt, from which the lenders stand to make great profit. Carl first became interested in payday lending when he began to see a gradual takeover on his local high streets. On his daily commute, he would notice the vacant shops in Kilburn, northwest London, were steadily being filled by more ostentatious shopkeepers. It seemed overnight that there seemed to be like a, a complete takeover, almost, it seemed, of payday lending shops. And uh, these were the shops that are open at night. These are the shops that had the sort of all-blazing, all-lit shop fronts and balloons and things like that, you know, to, to celebrate their opening. And I had no idea what these places were, but I knew that they looked slightly dodgy, which is why I had a little look more. Identified as the face of the recession in many news stories, Kilburn's vacated shops are also a symbol of the hardship that many businesses and families in Britain continue to face. But it seems that not everyone comes out losing in hard times. Carl's High Street was proof of that. Many high street shops are closing down. You can think of Woolworths and Curry's, and those shops are being replaced by and large on lesser affluent areas, lesser affluent high streets with payday shops and pawnbrokers and things like that. And these are 
these places, what, what happens is that because of the Town and Country Planning Act, those shops are able to take over from closed-down restaurants without any council say, so councils are unable to protest if there's a, a great rise of those shops on the high street. Carl is the author of Loan Sharks, The Rise and Rise of Payday Lending, a book which aims to lift the lid on the payday industry and expose the growing power that it wields. Documenting the rise of the industry with detailed evidence, Carl shows that although there have always been loan sharks, there's never been anything as large and powerful as the current set of payday loan companies operating virtually unchecked in the mainstream of the UK. Carl discusses how payday lending is not too dissimilar from bank lending or personal loans, but what distinguishes payday lenders is the high interest rates that come with short-term loans, available quickly and with little background checks. It's extremely expensive. A payday loan of £100 will probably cost you around £25 to £35 a week on top of that. Um, So if you consider bigger sums and month-live loans those prices really start to rack up. And these shops are often so ubiquitous because of the nature of competition in the industry. They don't necessarily compete on price. So what happens is that you still get very, very expensive loans, even if there's a a complete proliferation of that type of shop on the high street. What they compete on is speed. So essentially, they're trying to give people loans as quickly as possible. And that just encourages irresponsible lending, which is why there's so many... There's so much of outcry against the industry today. Payday lenders first appeared in America in the 1980s before migrating to other parts of the world. A lot of the usury laws in the United States kind of squeezed out payday lending, so those payday lenders themselves needed to go to places where the regulation was quite relaxed. And the UK happens to be somewhere that is, has very relaxed regulations on financial services. In 2004, the industry was worth around £100 million, and today it's worth between two and four billion. So it's something that has very much catalyzed on the recession. When researching the book, Carl met a man in southeast London who was in a real bind. And the more he borrowed money, the worse it got. His girlfriend, his partner, had just had a child and that they were struggling to afford simple things which are you know, nappies and, and food and, and the extra costs. Um, they were struggling. He'd also just lost his job. What's more is that um, he'd maxed out his credit cards in trying to afford his rent before he was able to move on to benefits and and, and make those claims. He was taking out uh, payday loans from online and offline uh, lenders in order to try and keep up with those bills, keep up with the the costs of of having a a newborn in your house. He wasn't taking out, uh, you know, many loans of one place where there could have at least been some sort of debt repayment plan. But he was going around to different places where it's a lot harder to track. In a place like Florida, this problem with shopping around different lending shops is mitigated by a tracking system which doesn't exist in the UK. In Florida, they have something called the Veritax system, which can allow the state of Florida to track various loans from various places, from various sources. It kind of works on a traffic light system. It's on amber if you start to drift into financial difficulties. And once you're into red, uh, that means um, the state will step in and um, provide you with a debt repayment plan aside from the lender itself. 
Uh, because we have nothing like that here, we have no tracking resource, and we know only 50 or 60% of payday loans go through credit reference agencies. There's simply no way of uh, having a tracking device. So this is his problem, that um, he was getting himself into lots of debt. So without this sort of tracking system, and with the UK's loose regulatory framework, Carl argues that payday lenders are able to drag the unsuspecting into debt very easily. These payday lenders themselves are trying to advertise their very attractive products, so-called. But we know the reality is they're not attractive at all. They can lead to dreadful debt cycles and essentially keep people locked in debt, which is actually where they make their money. So there's, there's no incentive for them to do otherwise. That's, that's what they want you to do. If, you, if they keep a good customer, i.e. a customer who will take out loans and loans, many loans and then pay them back and then roll over on those loans you know, to service existing loans or pay just the interest on the loans and take out loans for that. That's good for them. That's where they make their profit. The strength of individual payday lenders in the UK is clearly confirmed in their ability to survive with absolutely no media support. The payday lending industry doesn't have too many advocates in the mainstream press in the UK. That's not the same in, for example, the United States, where uh, the, the payday lending industry does have people arguing for them, for their products. But actually, what's, you know, what, what is rather interesting, perhaps even counterintuitive, is in, in this country, um, everyone seems to dislike them. It's testament to how powerful the payday lending industry is that the mainstream press can write these scathing articles about this industry, and the industry doesn't doesn't feel a pinch. In, in all other circles, you know, we worry about discrimination by, um, say, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express when they talk about immigrants out of control, and, and that has a, a knock-on effect on the, on the ways in which the general public sees that community. But with payday lending, they can just brush it aside because of, of, of just how powerful they are and, and how powerful their product is. However, payday lenders have recently seen pushback from football fans. In May 2013, Andy Walton, a passionate Bolton Wanderers fan, launched an online petition calling for the club to reverse the decision to allow payday loan company Quickquid to sponsor them. We say absolutely no to Quickquid. The petition collected over 4,500 signatories, bringing it to the attention of Bolton, who then dropped their sponsorship plans. The issue is a live one, and that people are encouraged by the uh, by the use of these these resources by the use of people coming together and acting against what they see as a as a, as an injustice and there's a, a sort of tarring of their football team's good name the relatively modest rise of financial alternatives may also deter some from using payday lending shops i'm quite optimistic that there will be some way in which the, the microfinance industry if you will can make breakthroughs, but it has to target its focus more on home credit, which is a slightly different product from payday lenders. Payday lenders obviously are are on the high street and they lend to people who are in financial difficulties as well. But home credit just go to your doorstep. They're they're licensed, they're not illegal uh, lenders, but they offer a far more expensive product because they have people going door to door, so you have to pay for those labour costs. And microfinance is targeting those types of lenders. So I, I'm not sure that it will be able to just directly compete with payday lending itself. That will happen in, in the distant future, perhaps. Credit unions themselves and credit union trade associations are more than happy to take up that fight. You know, at least some credit unions across the country are, are willing to try and offer a payday loan of sorts 
but where the interest and the, and the costs incurred from a, a loan taken out are much lower. And, and so I, I think there's some optimism. The government obviously also want to make something about that because there's, there's, a, there's a localism agenda attached to credit unions. I think one thing for them, one key thing for them is um, advertising and um, internet savviness. So a lot of credit unions don't have websites. As soon as you get a website and as soon as you know how to tap into social media, like payday lenders do, uh, you've got yourself a competition. Despite some grassroots successes, Carl feels that more proactive research and policy making is needed to stop payday lending in its tracks. I think that there should be some sort of philosophical paper on looking back at usury and uh, looking back at the history of ideas in terms of Thomas Aquinas and re- reasonable interest and uh, issues and debates like that, but also looking at, or addressing whether lenders should be making profit at all off, off basically poverty. You can find a review of Loan Sharks, along with many other economics and finance reviews, on the LSE Review of Books. Carl Packman's next book, Payday Lending, Global Growth of the High-Cost Credit Market, is out in April 2014. On the Academic Inspiration section on the LSE Review of Books, we ask prominent thinkers about the books that have inspired them into academia. Over the course of a year, a full range of academics from across the social sciences have shown that it is often an eclectic and unexpected mix of books that graces the shelves of an academic's office. Our latest contributor, John Van Rienen, director of LSE's Centre for Economic Performance, takes us through his academic history. He starts from when he was, in his own words, a geek, in love with the exciting double life of Superman, through to the text that shaped his own thinking about the economic world. Like most people, I never consciously chose a career, let alone God help me in economics. When adults would ask me, what will you be when you grow up? My usual reply was, biochemist. This had the intended effect of killing off further questions and wasn't a complete lie. Naturally, I hadn't got a clue what biochemist was, but I did know it was the chosen area of study of my hero, Spider-Man. Or more accurately, his alter ego, Peter Parker. All us geeks love Peter. Bullied at school, no girlfriend, etc. Peter had real-life problems. Spidey and the low-grade villains he foiled were surreal and compelling. I was a teenager in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when everything seemed to be falling apart in Britain. I was motivated by the desire to understand, to analyse, but also to change things. The disparities of power everywhere, in the schoolyard as well as the rich and poor parts of the globe. I wanted to analyse what was happening in order to change these for the better. I liked economics because it focuses on material interests as a driving force of human behaviour. We might not like the fact that incentives matter a lot, but it's true. As Adam Smith said, it is not from the benevolent to the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. A good way to start off with analysing any situation is to ask qui bono, who benefits, more felicitously, follow the money. Pretending that people are angels generally makes for poor policies, and the idea of treating people as rational agents interacting to produce often unexpected equilibria is a very powerful method. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations has most of economics nailed. My father was a sociologist and this led me to Karl Marx. Marx had this vaulting ambition to understand history and human societies. I think his most succinct expression of this 
is the introduction to a contribution to the critique of political economy. The best attempt to make Marxism coherent and self-consistent as a theory is a truly brilliant Making Sense of Marx by John Elster. This book manages to show what makes sense from an analytical perspective and what does not. The ambition of understanding social change in history is extraordinary, but by clarifying, um, this makes clear the ways in which Marx was fundamentally wrong. The key notion is the interplay between the driving forces of history of technical change and economic classes. This interaction between technology and power remains, in my view, the key to understanding economy and society. So although Marx wasn't right, he was looking in the right place. Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan has about everything about the foundations of politics that one needs to know. Skip the religious trite where Hobbes tries to dodge the fact that his bleak vision is deeply secular. The work is essentially a game-theoretic analysis of why in a modern economy with the division of labour requiring a large number of anonymous people living together, one needs a strong state. Anarchist fables are blown apart without mercy, as the state of nature is memorably described as nasty, brutish and short. Rational people will not end up cooperating freely, and it is in the best interest of all to desire a Hobbesthorpe strongly authoritarian body with a monopoly of the means of violence. John Dunn and Quentin Skinner have very good introduction to Hobbes. I've always located myself on the centre-left, but even in my strident student days, I was seen as an incorrigible reactionary by my many anarchist friends. Such disdain encouraged me even more into reading Hobbes, Locke, Smith and classic liberal thinkers. The clarity and beauty of economics won me over from all the other social sciences. It cut through so much sloppy thinking and hand-waving theorising. It's like a breath of fresh air to anybody who has read the turgid ramblings of too much social and political theory, even those like Habermas or Gramsci, for example, who are brilliant. But if I was honest about which books I maybe most want to be and stay an economist, it would be an odd mixture. Despite my love of microeconomics, being forced to read Keynes's general theory again and again at Cambridge has been a great boon. Just about everything required to understand the current crisis is here, as Paul Krugman's wonderful polemic, Endless Depression Now, makes clear. Start with Krugman and then go back and read Keynes. All the arguments and counter-arguments are there. My own research has been mostly influenced by empiricists. When I did a master's at LSE, I read Freeman and Medoff's What Do Unions Do?, which was a real revelation. The standard approach we learned as undergraduates was to incorporate institutional distortions like unions into a simple competitive model and use this to make qualitative predictions, which were always pretty bad. Richard Freeman could do this, of course, but when you apply any economic theory to the real world, it's generally ambiguous, at least away from the world of perfect competition. The book, therefore, focused on empirical tests of what unions actually did to jobs, to wages, to inequality, to profits, and above all else, to productivity. Using a mixture of careful statistical techniques, the book showed that on average, unions increased wages, reduced inequality, and reduced profits, and could even have positive effects on productivity through encouraging workers to have a voice rather than simply to exit the firm. The book's findings have held up pretty well over time, but for me, the excitement was that the main questions we asked as economists could be tackled by creatively using data and empirical techniques rather than just theory, which told you the answer in advance. And the answers were highly relevant for policy. Alongside my supervisor, Richard Blundell, Richard Freeman and David Carter, my gurus of economics, all three do careful empirical work with painstaking attention to data in order to address vital policy questions. 
When I started my career, I thought being a social scientist would be about grand theories and probing the secrets of the economic universe, like Stephen Hawking does for physics. In fact, as David Cardwell said to me, it's more like doing the plumbing. That was Professor John Van Rienen. You can find the full text of his contribution on the LSE Review of Books website, along with other short essays from prominent academics. That's all for this month's episode. Join us next month for a special podcast on architecture and urbanism, inspired by the Room for London architectural project on London South Bank. We meet architect David Cohn and Dr. Fran Tonkis from LSE Cities. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. For a full list of the music and sound used, and for all the latest social science reviews, visit us at lsereviewofbooks.com. I'm Amy Mollett. Until next time...